Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Lawmakers maneuver to lay the foundations for a budget deal. Nearly 700 military officers, except four stars, could be confirmed soon. What's next for the Israel-Hamas war now that a truce has led to the release of more than 100 Israeli hostages? NATO meets to reconfirm support for Ukraine. Washington and the world reflects on Henry Kissinger's legacy and what to expect from this year's Reagan National Defense Forum. Joining us today, as they do every week, uh, to discuss the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Gentlemen, welcome back. I uh, hope everybody had a terrific Thanksgiving uh, holiday as we enter the uh, eating season, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Dov, you've got a shoulder eight. Uh, Dov and Michael, you guys have got a shoulder eight days of that, as Dov points out to us, uh, as opposed to one day of Christmas. So, um, you know, best of luck to, 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 to everybody. Um, Michael, bring us up to speed uh, on where we stand, uh, right? We've got an outstanding National Defense Authorization Act. We have appropriations that are uncertain. We have a Ukraine-Israel-Taiwan supplemental that hangs in the balance as well, as Republicans and Democrats are trying to figure a way forward. And unfortunately, uh, Speaker Johnson is, is, is facing another possible uprising from the right who you know, doesn't like him working with Democrats on passing a spending measure, much less negotiating a budget deal uh, that includes something for the border that Democrats have been working on. And I know Hakeem Jeffries uh, uh, team, as well as uh, the majority leaders, uh, Senate majority leaders team have been working. Bring us up to speed on all of this. Well, I think as we talked on the last show, I mean, we're down to three legislative weeks after Thanksgiving, less than a year. And now we're always at the end of one of those. So we have two weeks left. And this is when most of the action is going to have to occur. So first on the NDAA, uh, we were hoping that the NDAA would be completed and actually filed uh, today, uh, but that's not going to be the case. It's going to be now delayed most likely now until Monday. There have been a few issues that have been uh, holding it up. Uh, most significantly has been uh, the AUKUS agreement, you know, which is the trilateral agreement between Australia, United Kingdom, and United States. And, and one, that request came over late after the budget request. It's got multiple jurisdictional issues on the Hill. Uh, and most importantly, there have been concerns raised about the impact of the ongoing shortfall in the domestic inventory of submarines, the strain on our already stressed industrial base, and then the sharing of sensitive technologies you know, with the AUKUS partners. And last week, Senator Wicker surprised his counterparts by objecting to the inclusion of the AUKUS provisions in the NDAA until additional funds for the submarine industrial base uh, were passed. And those funds are included right. in the supplemental request, which we'll talk about later. So he was insisting at the time that that must pass first uh, before he would agree to the AUKUS language in the NDAA. That uh, conflict has been resolved. I don't know what the resolution is, but it has been resolved. Uh, and now a lot of the big questions too is what other legislation is going to ride on NDAA? And they're going to spend the weekend trying to figure that out. For example, Patrick Henry, who chairs the House Financial Services Committee, wants his crypto legislation uh, to ride on it. Uh, Senators Sherrod Brown and Tim Scott want their Fentanyl Act to ride on NDAA. Uh, there's also a push to get 
the expiring provisions like Section 702 of uh, FISA uh, to ride on NDAA. Uh, Speaker Johnson said he supported that earlier in the week, but now there's a big backlash among a bipartisan group of lawmakers that don't want it to ride on the NDAA. They feel that it would be cir- circumventing the democratic process and ignoring a lot of the concerns that people have, have, have raised, risen about uh, FISA and also talk about FAA reauthorization. None of those things I don't think will really take will take the NDAA down, but I think we'll, uh, this will all be resolved by Monday. Then we get to the stickier issues. So now we have the supplemental Uh I think Schumer was still, I think, is still hoping to do something next week. But the sticky issue there, uh, the main one is, again, getting a, a deal on immigration and border policy, not just the money. Uh, and, right. you know, Senator Chris Murphy had a really good line earlier this week. Where he said gun, you know, because he was a big part of the gun control negotiation legislation that passed uh, earlier in the year. And he said the gun control is a right. piece of cake compared to immigration reform. You know, and, and he's right. So there's really three big issues Holding it up, you know, talk, talk about asylum standards, uh, safe third countries, you know, uh, you know, talking about expanding the number of countries that where asylum seekers would have to be uh, required to seek protection first before coming to the U.S. Uh, what's called the President's Parole Authority, you know, his authority, authority to temporarily admit people to the U.S. Uh, for humanitarian reasons or other reasons. Um, but Republicans have made it clear, and they're not bluffing, that they will not support Ukraine aid unless there are border measures included in the supplemental package. So that still remains to be seen and hopefully gets resolved in the next week or two. Uh, and, and, then, and where are and where are Democratic leaders on that? Well, they're divided on it. OK, so you have a bipartisan group of folks, uh, you know, Senators Tillis, Lankford, Cinema, Bennett, Murphy and Cotton working on this. But then you have some other senators very upset that there's this group of six. Uh, there are many Hispanic senators, for example, that are calling this six the gang of white. Uh, why aren't Hispanic people included in this discussion? So, look, an immigration deal uh, or, or policy provisions in there, there are always going to be people that are unhappy. There's no way you can make everybody happy with this. Uh, but I think in the end, uh, the Democrats know that they have to cherry pick some things out of the House Republicans, H.R. 2, their immigration legislation to put in here if they want to get Ukraine aid. And they do want to get Ukraine aid. So I, I'm still confident that some solution will be reached. Um, now, I've, I've felt really good about appropriations all week. And today I'm getting a little nervous um, because, you know, I felt all along that the Republicans would have to agree to a top line number uh, with the Democrats. And they'd have to, especially with the Senate. And do that this before they break for Christmas so that the appropriation staff would have the go ahead, have the top line numbers, start to write the bills. When they come back in January, many buses are ready to go so we can meet the deadline of the CR. We only have 16 legislative days left until uh, the first CR expires. That's 50 calendar days. So it's a lot of time for staff to do their work. Uh, But again, they cannot negotiate until there is a top line number. Now, there was some positive news uh, yesterday where Scott Perry, who's the leader of the Freedom Caucus, said, agreed to back the number in uh, the FRA, which is the debt ceiling legislation. Right. So instead of forcing their hand to go to FY22 numbers, they agreed to go to the FRA numbers, which is $1.59 trillion. However, he's saying that they want them to scrap any so-called side deals as part of this uh, arrangement. Uh, and there's a whole dispute as to what was and was not a side deal. Now, there was a lot of talk, remember, at the time, when this passed, that the Senate wanted to add supplemental spending to make up for that. One, in defense spending. Two, in non-defense domestic discretionary spending. I don't think that stands much of a chance. But part of this deal was that they would use $69 billion in unspent COVID right. funds 
to make up for the non-defense numbers that were being cut so dramatically. Now, the Freedom Caucus and the hard right are saying no. They, they feel that's a gimmick. That's a side deal. They want that out. That's a $70 billion cut to non-defense domestic discretionary, which is a non-starter for the Democrats. So if they can't come to an agreement on that, they're in serious trouble. My understanding is, is that Speaker Johnson is going to make an offer to the Democrats on Monday. So we'll have to see uh, what that offer is. But if they, if they have to give on any of that $69 billion, the Democrats will insist then that some money get cut from defense as well to make up for that. Uh, and that's going to be a non-starter as well. So it's getting ten- it's tenuous, but we still have two more weeks to figure this out and get to a top line. And I'm still maintaining my optimism uh, that we will get there. Uh, uh, the Joint Chief Staff Chair C.Q. Brown also sent a letter to Congress this week uh, stressing that a year-long CR would be devastating and listed all the impacts to munitions, shipbuilding, personnel, et cetera, you know, to continue making the point. Every member I talk to knows that we cannot go down that road. So I'm still confident that we will get there on a probe supplemental and the NDAA. It's just it gets more painful every year. Does Mike Johnson survive? You know, the, the irony of this is that George Santos might survive, but Mike Johnson won't. Nah, I am very confident that Mike Johnson is going to survive. OK, uh, look, uh, there's a lot that goes on publicly and, and, things, and different things that go on behind the scenes. Right. Um, Scott Perry would not have come out. Uh, in favor of that number if he and Johnson hadn't talked about it already, right? And the Freedom Caucus and the associated hard right folks uh, in the House know that they will never get a speaker as conservative Mike Johnson ever again. And if they were to topple Mike Johnson, that the alternative is a unity speaker with the Democrats. I've talked to many senior Republicans who have told me that this is it, right? So if it's not Johnson, they're working with the Democrats, and that's a far worse situation for the hard right. So you will see them complain and whine and moan but I believe that Mike Johnson's untouchable. Uh, let me uh, take you. And uh, George, uh, we are recording this so the audience uh, knows uh, on Thursday uh, evening. Uh, and we uh, is uh, George Santos going to be expelled from the House or not? I don't know. I, I, I thought so uh, earlier today, but more and more Republicans seem to be coming out uh, against his expulsion. Uh, I still think he probably does get expelled tomorrow. Uh, but there are so people making argument against and actually their argument is not without merit. Right. They're they're saying that he he's been indicted, but he hasn't been convicted. And that would be a new precedent because right. previous members who have been expelled were either expelled for reasons of treason because they were part of the Confederacy or they've right. been convicted of crimes. Right. So like Jim traffic camp. Exactly. Right. So I wouldn't I'm not going to hold it against any of these members for um, not voting to expel. Eventually, he will get convicted and he will get expelled, right? Uh, and he's putting right. on quite a sideshow. In the meantime, he held a press conference this morning that was, you know, really crazy. Uh, and he also offered his own expulsion measure targeting Jamal Bowman uh, for pulling the fire alarm uh, the day they were uh, negotiating the CR uh, several months ago. So, uh, and now at the same time, uh, the clown show continues because the uh, House Republicans are saying that they are going to move forward to officially launch an impeachment inquiry against President Biden with a floor vote on the House and GOP members have been told that they could expect a vote on that in the coming weeks. And today, uh, there was also a resolution that was pu- resolution that was pulled from the floor to impeach Mayorkas as well. So uh, this all the sideshows uh, continue. And uh, very uh, briefly, uh, this um, uh, Senate Armed Services Committee cleared, I think it was 679 uh, flag and general officers, except for four stars, uh, an expectation, at least on Thursday evening, by some that Tuberville will allow those through, but continue blocking uh, the four stars. Where do we stand? Tommy Tuberville has shown no flexibility 
And in fact, other members have rallied to his uh, cause, like Senator Lee. Where are we going to end up? Well, uh, as I said two weeks ago, I think this is going to get resolved uh, before the end of the year. Uh, Tupperville said to his colleagues, um, I got you into this mess. I'm going to get you out. Uh, he's signaling that he's on the verge of a pivot. We just know what that's going to be or when that's going to be. But you know, he knows that he's facing a revolt among some of his colleagues, that they're prepared to vote with the Democrats to temporarily change Senate rules. He does not want to see that happen. So I believe there's going to be a resolution to this uh, in the coming week or two. Uh, from your mouth to uh, God's ears, uh, as they say. A very quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, uh, Dove, uh, we've had a cessation of hostilities for a week. Uh, as some hundred Israeli hostages or so, mostly women and children, have been exchanged uh, for some 200 some odd uh, women and uh, minors uh, in Israeli captivity. Aid is flowing, or at least some aid is flowing to Gaza. Uh, that's thanks to, uh, and and these deals are all part of uh, intensive negotiations between the administration, Qatar, uh, Egypt, uh, as well as Israel and, and Hamas. Uh, Washington is working hard to keep Israel from resuming hostilities, which are um, not playing well internationally at this point, uh, and the source of some uh, division uh, not just in the Republican Party, excuse me, in the Democratic Party, uh, but also sort of society uh, writ large. Bibi is vowing that he's going to start military operations in the South once the hostage deal expires. Where where do we stand? Because there was some look at this and say, well, the wider war we expected hasn't started. Uh, you know, Bibi still thinks he can survive that. I had a conversation of that nature with somebody today. What, what's, what's your sense? Where are we and what's the next step of this uh, ultimately that doesn't end up also embroiling the president. I mean, this is playing very badly among uh, Democrats. And there are folks who are saying that, you know, the, the president could well be losing the election to Donald Trump uh, over this, over his support for Israel. Well, a couple of things. First, uh, you got to give a lot of credit to Bill Burns and secondly to uh, Tony Blinken. Uh, Burns has been doing the negotiation with the Qataris, the Egyptians, all the folks that, uh, and of course, Hamas, the folks you've mentioned, uh, and look, he, he, he did get 100 people out. Um, as for Blinken, he's the one who keeps sending the message to Netanyahu. He's on, I think, his third trip to Israel now, basically telling him, don't do in South Gaza what you did in the northern part of Gaza. Don't just blow everything up. Now, the, the, there are 170 hostages left which means in theory this could go on for some more time if Hamas is willing to play, which I think they will be. Now, a lot of people worry that, oh, Hamas will reconstitute. I don't know how any military reconstitutes in a matter of three or four weeks. Their leadership has been, is being killed off. And so I, I think the Israelis will continue to uh, work to release hostages, especially because Netanyahu faces tremendous dom domestic pressure on the hostage issue, much more than on the wiping out Hamas issue. So I think this is going to go on for a while. Now, then the question is, what happens next? If uh, Islamic Jihad or one of these other uh, fringe groups starts firing uh, rockets at Israel, it gives the Israelis an excuse to start all over again. Uh, and I think Biden will continue to support them. But how they actually do it is a whole different matter. Uh, 
I don't think they will be anything like what they were doing in northern Gaza. You know, the, this antiseptic word collect, you know, collateral damage, which essentially means killing everybody. Um, I don't think they're going to do that. And they've already dropped very heavy hints that they're going to go after both the political and the military leadership with targeted assassinations. Nobody is going to complain about that except Hamas and Islamic Jihad. So I think that what you're going to see uh, is more uh, hostages released um, and then maybe a provocation by somebody uh, to get the Israelis once again to uh, try to do to, to eliminate Hamas troops, uh, but without blowing up hospitals and apartment buildings and schools and so on. Whatever happens, whether or not that happens, I think they're going to continue and intensify their uh, targeted assassinations. And remember, that doesn't have to happen in a couple of months. I mean, think about how the, how long it took them to get everybody who was involved in the Munich massacre uh, years ago at the Olympics. So uh, I, now, Bibi's situation is kind of interesting because, strictly speaking, when the commission that was created that led to after the 73 war that led to Golda Meir's resignation, those commissions are created by the Israeli cabinet. And guess who controls the cabinet? I don't even know if there'll be a commission. Meanwhile, and this is something that uh, I think will be published tomorrow morning, there's a new uh, amended budget that uh, the, def- the Treasury Minister uh, Smutrick, the finance minister, has put forward, which not only puts more money into the or transfers money into the defense budget, but has money for settler security and for the religious schools, which is unbelievably outrageous in the middle of a war. How we'll react to that is going to be quite interesting. My own proposal, for what it's worth, is reduce our aid to Israel by the amounts he wants to spend on this stuff. Uh, But it just shows you the massive cynicism. Netanyahu is supporting this, by the way the massive cynicism on the part of Netanyahu's extreme right-wingers, who, by the way, are pushing for an attack on Gaza under all circumstances. Uh, I don't think that'll happen, but it shows you the pressures on him from both directions. Michael, uh, very briefly, do you think there's any support for suspending or tying aid uh, and tying up Israel aid? I mean, this is in fact, Congresses have pushed against the administrations, whether it was your administration, right? I mean, President Reagan uh, did it, President Bush did it, and uh, they ended up uh, eventually being resumed just really briefly. No, there is not enough support uh, to put conditions on the aid to Israel. Uh, and most significantly, Senator Cardin, who chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has come out against any such conditions. So those are no- it's noise on the far left. But when this aid passes, and it will pass, there will be no conditions associated with it. No, I, I look. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't think that that anything will happen. But I think the accumulation of what Netanyahu is doing is simply going to intensify, particularly the Democratic Party's support for Israel, which, as we know, is already shrinking. Jim, uh, thanks very much for your patience. Uh, I want to uh, get your sense right. I mean, we uh, had a uh, NATO uh, ministerial uh, foreign ministers uh, met in uh, Brussels. Uh, walk us through what some of the messages were uh, and what it means uh, for uh, Ukraine, right? Still delivering 
uh, a beating to Russian uh, forces uh, and kind of holding its own, even as Russians step up their attack. What did you hear uh, from the meeting that jumped out at you? Well, two things. Uh, the first one is the unity aspect of the uh, of the ministers. And I, and I know this is a, people take that for granted and we laugh at the family photo and all that type of thing. But increasingly keeping the alliance together and unified publicly uh, is important as we have Turkey and Hungary and others that are privately in the U.S. as well, sending signals that are mixed in terms of of support for Ukraine and how we go about doing it, et cetera. And so having, uh, first and foremost, the ministerial take place and there weren't there weren't any discordant sounds that I heard coming out of it. Um, uh, that was an important thing for Ukraine to hear and for the Russians to hear. Um, and so we have to keep that up. And that's the first thing. Second thing is um, <clears throat> they had the first meeting of the NATO-Ukraine Council. Uh, first formal meeting. I know they had one uh, back in Vilnius uh, or next day at Vilnius, uh, kind of a get to know you meeting. But this was the first one uh, uh, that they held in a, on a formal basis. And supposedly, um, according to the secretary general in his press conference, there were a lot of things that allies agreed if for a package to help uh, Ukraine understand what the expectations are by the allies towards membership. In other words, is there a is there a map towards uh, membership? Uh, what are the expectations and how do, will allies individually, as well as NATO, help Ukraine deal with things like corruption, uh, interoperability? There's a lot of other things, there's a list of things that NATO laid out for Ukraine and for Zelensky saying, this, has got, this is what we're gonna need to see. But the sec gym was, was just um, over the moon, you know, coming out of the, out of the ministerial about how how good things are going to be for Ukraine when we get to the Washington summit. So I didn't see a lot of detail. I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, but there seems to be this feeling that um, that the, the administration particularly is going to get away from this policy of trying to ignore the membership issue for Ukraine, at least in terms of the uh, Washington summit, that uh, that in fact, they know they've got to come to grips with having uh, something said at the summit, something positive about Ukraine membership. And so they're working towards this package. So I think on the whole that the foreign ministers meeting um, was good in terms of Ukraine, was good in terms of beginning to put together the package for the Washington summit. Um, and again, holding everything together, um, there, there weren't uh, any embarrassing moments of disunity. So it was a short meeting, I thought. Uh, but it's but it's over and uh, the uh, conferees have moved on and uh, we look now look forward to, uh, um, you know, the uh, the run up to the big summit in July. And and just really uh, quickly, I don't know if we've discussed this on the program, but uh, there is a reason why this is happening in July instead of when the actual 75th anniversary would be right, which would be in April. That's right. And and I think there have been some furrowed eyebrows about this over the past number of months. Uh, why suddenly this has popped up in July and not just in July, but a few days before the Republican National Convention. Um, so it's a very tender time in the U.S. political calendar to be having a big extravaganza in Washington. But here we go. Uh, and um, and so I, there have been fingers pointed at the administration saying you've done this on purpose. You've put it in July because you're going to make a big extravaganza here. You're going to paint the president as a, as a great diplomat and, and world leader and NATO leader and 
uh, right before the convention, and this is all political. But I've heard uh, that, in fact, it was more of a screw up on the calendar where uh, no one thought to call the Washington Convention Center and, and book a time back in April uh, on the 75th anniversary for the summit. And by the time someone picked up the phone and uh, and talked to the Washington Convention Center, uh, April was full and the best they could do was mid-July. And so so here we are. Uh, and, um, and, and if anything, uh, this certainly raises the temperature for the administration to make sure that this is a real slam dunk when it comes to a summit. Uh, if they had done it in April and it didn't work out quite the way they wanted it to, there's still time, you know, in the electoral calendar uh, back in April. But, but, but moving it to July, right before the convention, they think it better go well because this is going to be a big showcase for the president and uh, the allies are going to have to make sure uh, that, in fact, that summit becomes something that is a, a real good platform for the president as they move into the elections. Uh, and very briefly, uh, Geert Wilders, a uh, longtime right-wing uh, politician in the Netherlands, has been, uh, uh, you know, won the election. So it's his right to form a government. We'll see what happens. Not a big fan of the European Union. Uh, not a particularly big fan of immigrants, uh, and not entirely a big fan of NATO either. Right? Everybody took a big sigh of relief when. Uh, Donald Tusk, uh, uh, you know, or at least the Law and Justice Party was defeated in Poland. What does this tell us about what to expect uh, from European politics? And what is the election of a hard right prime minister in the Netherlands after three decades of Mark Rutte mean? Well, I mean, it was something that really caught uh, so many uh, of the Dutch uh, by surprise. I've talked to uh, just today. Uh, some folks uh, from The Hague, and they just were shaking their heads saying they didn't think they'd see this. Um, but I think, it, it, you know, uh, you know, we'll have to see, as you point out, that he's going to have to put together a coalition. Um, there's folks that say they will not work with him, uh, you know. But, but I think the point here is that these kind of things can happen in European politics and in the U.S. as well. This is not something that you can make assumptions that European politics are going to head in one direction or another. Uh, we, we love to say that democracy is on the march all over the world and uh, and in Europe. And and and, uh, and then within a year or two, things turn around when there's elections and and the electorate show that they're not happy with where that march is going. And so they go in with something more conservative. So on the one hand, uh, the Polish voters, I think, did the right thing. Uh, we'll see where, where the Polish government, uh, how it sorts itself out. But I think there was general relief there, as you point out. But Slovakia was the opposite. And now it's now it's the Dutch, uh, right. Dutch turn. And so we'll see about France, uh, what happens with Le Pen. Um, you know, this must be heartening her uh, her supporters that uh, maybe something like that can happen in France. So, uh, you know, you can never take your eye off the ball when it comes to politics uh, in Europe or increasingly in the United States. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the whole Le Pen uh, situation uh, plays out. And of course, you're making a reference to Robert Kagan's piece in the Washington Post uh, that, you know, the folks should take much more seriously, perhaps, than they are uh, of um, uh, Donald 
Trump's, uh, you know, his prospects for becoming uh, reelected, uh, I would say, as uh, America's uh, president. Uh, Patrick, uh, you have been uh, very patient uh, and uh, certainly some fascinating uh, headlines. Uh, one of them is that the United States now has joined Canada uh, in accusing uh, an Indian operative uh, of, uh, you know, saying that uh, it was American authorities that foiled uh, an attempt on a uh, Sikh American um, Canada uh, has tried to hold um, India to account for the assassination on Canadian soils of a Canadian uh, Sikh activist, uh, and it looks like uh, India may have done this uh, as well in the United States. It's a it's a big step. Uh, Canada was feeling a little bit alone, even though the United States apparently played a a key role in part of the investigation uh, heading into this. Um, and some concerns about an, uh, India becoming an increasingly illiberal democracy under Narendra Modi. Walk us through what this story means at a very important time that the United States is, uh, you know, increasingly working to try to cultivate and deepen that relationship that uh, George W. Bush is the one who started uh, actively uh, working to bring the two nations together. What does this all mean? Well, I think U.S. and India remain uh, strategic partners. And the, the danger here, though, is that if Modi doesn't rein in his covert operations, if this is indeed a covert operation that was uh, condoned and conducted with the authority of uh, of the research and analysis wing, their intelligence, um, he's going to jeopardize U.S. support for accelerating India's rise. Because right now, that's the strategic uh, trajectory of where India and the United States are going. And India has some tremendous advantages behind it in terms of a young population now overtaking China's aging population. Um, but all of that could be still stalled by a disagreement over an incident like this, a very touchy issue of, uh, of kill, killing, or in the case of the U.S., trying to kill uh, Mr. Panoon, a New York City lawyer who is also uh, the head of uh, uh, you know, the Khalistan justice movement. Uh, he was the lawyer right. for Mr. Nijar, who was killed in Canada. Both of these incidents uh, are, you know, attempted incidents happened in the May-June period. Um, and so this is old news. And this is what P Prime Minister Trudeau was obviously uh, revealing a couple of months ago when he, he, he blurted out without providing evidence that the Indian uh, government was behind the assassination of Mr. Nijar. Um, the United States quietly supported, but then tried to bury the story by back-channel quiet diplomacy, which is where this belongs, um, because India and the United States have to uh, pursue their strategic interests, and that that's going to require India to play by the rules of dealing with a strategic partner, meaning you can't conduct this kind of operation uh, if we're going to be strategic partners. And so that message has to be given to Mr. Modi very clearly. I mean, there has been uh, some reporting and certainly some uh, and The Economist uh, falls in this category of saying that, um, you know, effectively, I mean, not not to oversimplify it, but that India, that, it, you know, at some point, India and China could actually get much closer than they are today, opposed to having this relationship of suspicion uh, that is propelling to a degree uh, New Delhi's sort of hedging strategy with the with the United States. Now, I've met with a lot of Indian leaders over the decades, and they have been very skeptical about China and, you know, worried about it uh, and see it as a military threat. From from your standpoint, is there any, should Washington be worried where India's long-term interests may lie, which is perhaps with another illiberal 
like not even an illiberal democracy, but another outright authoritarian state, the more Modi gets accused of crafting an authoritarian state. Well, it should ask everybody to think about the different positions that Washington and New Delhi are coming at the world. Um, the United States is trying to preserve its position against a rising China. India is still rising and wants to play a balance of power game and be more assertive globally now, uh, much more so than when with the non-aligned policies of Nehru, they were uh, much more uh, focused on creating national identity, unity, um, and, and being a force in the non-aligned movement. Now they're trying to play uh, with all of the big powers. Um, this is nothing new. Uh, India, right. um, it signed a treaty with the Soviet Union months after Nixon went to China um, because they wanted a clear counterbalance to China and the United States. In 1993, India negotiated a legal deal on the border dispute with China, despite the 1962 right. war and vows that they were going to reclaim every inch. So they, they know how to play balance of power politics. And they're doing this now, but they really need the United States to be that accelerator for their rise. They cannot afford to screw it up by conducting this kind of cowboy covert operation, if that's indeed what this is. Um, and bring us up to speed on other uh, news, uh, right? Because uh, all the attention now is flowing, uh, not just to uh, Israel, right? Or I, I should say Ukraine has been knocked onto the headlines, but there is... Uh, um, uh, you know, and then Israel, right? I mean, all the all the attention is going to the Middle East and 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 to Europe. What uh, give us uh, bring us up to speed on what's been going on in Asia over the last week and a half, two weeks? Sure. Well, let's start with the Middle East because China just uh, finished its presidency uh, in November of the UN Security Council, and Wang Yi came to chair the meeting um, where they uh, talked about uh, a Middle East peace plan and a roadmap and a two state solution. While the United States and North Korea were going at it over the military satellite using uh, an ICBM, a, a ballistic missile, illegal ballistic missile, to launch that military satellite apparently successfully uh, earlier in November. Um, and so you can see China trying to, to use uh, you know, North Korea as a proxy to hold back the Americans and keep them diverted while they talk about their peace plan, uh, which, is, which is interesting. Meanwhile, um, uh, China's not letting up on its assertiveness in the region. They've been threatening Taiwan, um, un, un, you know, un, sort of paralleled um, cyber attacks, according to Google, new fighter threats, um, threatening the Democratic Progressive Party, which is in the lead by about five points by the latest uh, poll, partly because the blue-white alliance of the two opposition parties failed to uh, sort of agree on one candidate, so they're running separately. Um, so that favors the Democratic Progressive Party still. Um, and, and so um, China's saying... That is a poisonous duo uh, in terms of the Lai Shao president, vice presidential right. nominee uh, candidates for DPP. Um, they're also uh, threatening the United States over arms to Taiwan, saying this is a powder keg uh, and this has to stop. So a lot of tension still on the Taiwan issue, but that's really China trying to set the terms of reference for uh, what is going to come next in Taiwan. And they really want to just kind of keep them uh, corralled because they're very worried about the direction of this issue. Um, it's very interesting that, you know, on the one hand, Chairman Gallagher writing in the Wall Street Journal saying, don't expect the slow economic growth of China to hold back uh, Xi Jinping if he wants to attack. Um, meanwhile, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, the current president of, of Taiwan, saying it's unlikely China will attack because they are so weakened with their economy. Interesting uh, juxtaposition of views there. Uh, other news, Japan just grounded essentially the Osprey uh, tilt rotor 
uh, sort of aircraft once again because of this latest uh, crash right. and training operation. Um, and it's it's a real issue for Japanese political will. Will politicians stand up in a contingency in a crisis when there's real death potential um, if they fear it? I mean, it, they're so risk averse. Uh, they're caving in immediately right. to the fear when, in fact, the only people who are really hurt by this are military professionals who put their lives on the line for realistic right. combat training. Uh, in the Philippines, meanwhile, um, they're talking about joint multilateral uh, maritime patrols, which is which is great, but it's getting um, uh, threatening noises from from China, including toward the Australians, telling the Australians who just operated there, um, you must uh, notify us if you're going to be in our waters again. And they were also just uh, castigated by uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong because the Chinese had uh, essentially endangered an Australian diver uh, last month in November right. uh, in uh, Japanese waters. Um, the Australians are going to be opening up their first subtender uh, in Sterling uh, in early part of next year. That's the beginning of the phase one of AUKUS, where Australians are now going to be working on our submarines in anticipation of building up their own capacity for operating right. submarines. Um, and on what Michael had talked about in terms of AUKUS, uh, Congress is going to have to make some important um, decisions here over the next few weeks about AUKUS, including the uh, international traffic and arms regulations, which need to be um, somehow adjusted carefully um, to make sure that it doesn't impede AUKUS cooperation, but doesn't open up the door to unintended consequences. And meanwhile, I noticed that Representative Joe Courtney is out there saying uh, the submarine base, industrial base of America, is really on the mend. The, the, the infusion of funds, additional shipyard help um, is going to be uh, able to deliver on uh, selling Virginia-class subs without uh, hurting uh, our own submarine base. Uh, want to go to you uh, to start uh, the discussion of Henry Kissinger's legacy, uh, a profound one, a German-American uh, uh, who arrived uh, with his family in the United States. He served in, uh, went back to Germany uh, and served as an American soldier uh, and was a very formative experience. And then he became one of the nation's great uh, national security teachers, minds, and certainly practitioner, uh, both as secretary of state, but also national security advisor, uh, and certainly was one of the instrumental voices uh, in not just detente with the Soviets at a time when the United States was coming out of a very uh, tough war in Vietnam, uh, get some breathing space, but also then the rapprochement with China. What's uh, I want to go quickly around the table with everybody. What's the legacy of uh, Henry Kissinger? Well, he knew how to wield power when America was at the zenith of its power. Um, he helped to win the Cold War. He helped keep us out of war with the Soviet Union and balance the power with China um, but as Joe Nye writes in Foreign Affairs, while there were moral failures, um, the strategic successes outweigh that. And I agree with that. I also agree with George Will, who happened to say, look, he, he had to win a Cold War when others wanted to manage it. It needed to be won, and he, and he helped to do that. And that overrides the failures that he had morally. Um, incredible a human being. You live a century, of course, uh, and you live long enough, you get a lot of enemies, and, and there'll be some secrets that will undoubtedly come out now now that he's dead, um, that uh, will tarnish his reputation. And so he's going to be, um, you know, historians are going to be writing about him for, for for decades and centuries to come. Um, let me just uh, very uh, quickly write. I mean, uh, there was a sense that he was very soft on China or had fallen under China's lure uh, or was being manipulated, you know, was being used uh, by uh, the, Ch the Chinese. Are you one of those voices who agrees with that sense or, or did you see 
a strategist being strategic um, in his sort of in interest well, again, in preserving. I, I, <laughs> he was interested in preserving the balance of power. He was interested in order. I mean, this is what he came out of. He saw um, the Nazis uh, taking away world order. Um, he helped to preserve and build world order. He was committed to that. Now, was he used by the Communist Party of China in his later years? Yes, um, but but many businessmen who are doing work in China are also used. It doesn't mean they're doing all the wrong thing. It just means that um, you know they no longer have as much influence over the situation as he did when he was in government, which was a long time ago. Um, and he had to he had to make a living, uh, and he, he uh, wrote books and had a lot of influence. He was always relevant, and he always kept America relevant. So. You know, you can criticize him, um, but if you were in a position of power and you could do better strategically than Henry Kissinger, my hat's off to you. Um, uh, Jim, uh, your uh, take, and then uh, Dove, quickly yours, and then we've got to get Dove's take on what to expect from the Reagan National Defense Forum. Go ahead, Jim. Well, just just something that I think we ought to talk about, too, and many of us remember that he was quite a culture, a figure in the American culture uh, in a lot of ways. You know, as a personality, as a media personality as someone who uh, was always dazzling uh, his uh, supporters by having a uh, parading around with uh, women on his arm and with these snappy uh, re uh, rejoinders to um, to questions given to him. He I remember so well, he always was in the newspapers or in the magazines, not just for the things that Patrick talked about, just but just right. because of the image that he cultivated and the the um, you know the, the way he conducted himself publicly that he became uh, an icon certainly of the 1970s super K you know right. he was the uh, right. on the front page of all of the uh, news magazines of the day so he's not just a uh, uh, the, the diplomat that we know about the academic that we know about but he actually entered into the American psyche the into the American culture certainly in the 1970s. Uh, yeah, in, uh, indeed. Uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not, right, I mean, uh, Rich Little and some of his staple uh, impersonations of Henry uh, Henry uh, Kissinger. And he did mentor so many people. And it was always interesting that no matter who you were, he would take a little bit of time to talk to you. You know, he understood that he was Henry Kissinger and you were interacting with him uh, and, and certainly was always, ex you know, exceptionally charming man. Uh, by the way, with uh, with a tremendous wit, whatever you you and an intellect, whatever it is you want to uh, judge his uh, legacy. Obviously, Ben Rhodes, uh, the uh, President Obama's former uh, Deputy National Security Advisor, had a very critical piece of uh, about uh, Dr. Kissinger. Uh, Dove, you probably interacted more with Dr. Kissinger than any of us over the decades. Give us your sense on what uh, his legacy is. Uh, I met him in the 1980s. Um... I wasn't one of his thousand closest friends, but I, I got to know him reasonably well. Uh, apart, I agree with everything that's been set up to now. I would point out a number of other things. First, he invented shuttle diplomacy. Um, I think the legacy of his opening up one of the concentration camps led him to ultimately support aid to Israel when its existence was threatened in 1973. If you see the movie Golda, you'll see that. He re represented American interests, but he clearly, uh, when push came to shove, uh, did support the Israelis. Then he goes ahead and he works out peace agreements between Israel and Egypt, between Israel and Syria, 
that was just remarkable. Within a few years, uh, Egypt and Israel signed a peace treaty. Wouldn't have happened without Kissinger. And uh, Assad, for all his hardline, you know, Arab nationalist, Ba'athist ideology, never broke the deal that Kissinger had brokered. So I think that's very important. Uh, and look, um, you want to talk about real politique? Um, yes, he sold the Chilean government down the drain. He sold the East Bengalis down the drain. Of course, the bombing of Cambodia and Laos. But you know what? Look at what Biden has done with Saudi Arabia after he said they were a pariah state. Um, look at his support for Israel when so many people are against it. Uh, you know, you just have to weigh the pros and the cons. And I think ideologues generally, which, of course, Kissinger was the opposite of, tend to see the world in black and white. And Kissinger, of course, recognized that it's all a matter of shades of gray. Now, to the extent that people might argue over a darker shade or a lighter shade of gray, fair enough. But he was fundamentally correct. The world is not black and white as much as we would like it to be. Uh, indeed, in a case that uh, he would make when people would ask, you know, whether he viewed himself as a war criminal or how could he do these things? And he would say, well, if you look at the information we had at the time and we were trying to do this in the broader context, uh, you will uh, understand why we were doing that. Uh, we've got uh, very little time left. Uh, Dove, uh, the Na Reagan National Defense Forum will be happening at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, uh, California. Uh, I always look forward to the event and sadly this year won't be able to join you uh, and your, uh, your very talented uh, and handsome uh, son, Roger uh, Zakheim for uh, this event. Uh, walk us through um, you know, what it is, uh, you know, what are the takeaways you expect this year? It was a fascinating survey uh, again. It was very heartening to see that uh, bipartisan support for Ukraine remains. Um, just give us a quick sense, and you're going to be joining us on Monday's show as well uh, for uh, a recap uh, and what some of the big takeaways were. What are your expectations going into this Reagan Forum, and what should the audience expect? Because uh, folks can watch this online. Uh, so, you know, even if they can't get to the museum, uh, they will be able to see some of the intellectual goodness that will be on display. Well, first of all, the, the poll that they take every year uh, has been followed more by more and more people uh, because it really does reflect the, the nation's sense of a whole panoply of national security issues. And of course, that's going to be briefed in great detail. A couple of other things that might come out. First, uh, AUKUS is going to be a subject of discussion. The British defense minister is going to be there. Um, I think the Australian may be there as well. Uh, but clearly, given what we've already heard uh, from uh, Michael, uh, this is a major issue and it will be a subject of considerable discussion and sidebars. The other one that I think is worth taking notice of is that with every passing year, more and more of the Silicon Valley type companies are participating in this forum, which is really very important because if the department is really going to open up to the commercial sector, which it absolutely has to do if it's going to stay ahead of China. These people need to be players. And of course, when you get the service secretaries and the chiefs and senators and congressmen mingling with people who are from the Silicon Valley, and I mean Silicon Valley in the sense of leading edge high-tech companies, 
that's very, very important because that's the only way we're going to stay ahead of our, our adversaries, be they the Russians, the Chinese or whoever. Uh, indeed. And uh, we can see that in terms of uh, the companies uh, that are also uh, sponsoring uh, the event, but a very strong showing by Palantir and Andrel uh, and a number of other innovative companies. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, it wouldn't be a Friday unless we had an opportunity uh, to talk. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And a special thanks uh, to Bell and all of our sponsors who make this program possible uh, every day and every week. We'll be back again on Sunday uh, for the Business Roundtable. Until then, hope everybody has a great day, uh, a great weekend, and look forward to being with you again soon. Thanks very much and take care.